Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Jim Harris as my guest today. He is a principal at Strategic Advantage and has 20 years experience as a professional speaker and consultant and speaks internationally at more than 40 conferences a year on topics including innovation and creativity, customer relationship management, creating learning organizations, strategic planning, and environmental leadership. He was one of the first seven Canadians personally trained by Al Gore to present the slideshow for An Inconvenient Truth. He was also one of just 12 Canadians who were licensed to publicly teach Dr. Stephen Covey's work, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Jim is also a regular columnist at the Huffington Post and author of the international best-selling book, Blindsided, The Learning Paradox and Emotional Learning. Welcome, Jim. Tiffany, it's great to be on your podcast. Yes, and it's my you're my first Canadian, just Woo-hoo! on the same, I know, representing proud. I now have had, you know, America, U.S., I've had Australia, and now we've got Canada covered. We're, we're making progress. All right. Well, we're going to start off with something I like to do fun called bullish and bearish, and it is a way for me to just kind of get the juices flowing for the podcast and have a little fun with some questions, and you just answer sort of bullish and bearish, and I haven't been able to keep everybody, or anyone, I should say, to just those two words. <laughs> Everyone adds color, so please feel free. <laughs> All right, you ready? I'm ready. All right. So the next billion people to get online will primarily use voice commands to control all their interactions with the device. I am bullish on that statement. Good. All right. The next is there is another mobile advertising disruption right around the corner. Uh, bullish on that. Oh, I'd love to dig into that. Any Anything you want to expand on? Well, uh, just just that it is such a large platform, it's inevitable that there's going to be disruption in it. Uh, you know, we've seen that mobile has exceeded desktop in page views globally, and that in turn means the dominant uh, OS is um, Android, no longer Windows globally. And so I just I just have to believe that with those huge shifts that are occurring new things are going to emerge. We've already talked about voice, but AI is a revolution uh, that is just at its nascent uh, starting stages. Excellent. Great. And then next and last is incumbents. So large organizations can find an agile mindset. Bearish. Ah, excellent. We will (laughs) dig into that one. (laughs) <laughs> I definitely want to hear your opinion there. So, you know, before we get started, I, I because you do so much uh, around um, innovation and disruption, if you wouldn't mind starting maybe with how do you define those two things? Well, uh, disruption is where uh, some new entrant into your market uh, s- takes uh, market share away from incumbents. Uh, usually, you know, in the past, it was large companies that dominated small, but today it's the fast that dominate the slow. 
And, you know, given the agility of small uh, companies, uh, the incumbents, which are kind of like dinosaurs and slow moving, are, are just not fast to respond. Um, and there are hundreds of examples, you know, many we're really aware of, such as uh, uh, Netflix uh, blindsided Blockbuster. And Skype now facilitates more international long distance phone calls than all the major telcos of the world added together. And uh, Airbnb now has more accommodation than any hotel chain in the world. Uh, you know, you can just go on and on. Uber is worth more than every taxi cab company in North America added together. Um, Tesla is worth more than GM. GM made 10 million cars in 2016 and Tesla made 76,000. And yet the market is valuing Tesla more than GM. Now, they're building in though the uh, $20 billion of Tesla Model 3 orders that are just starting to produce now, uh, as well as Tesla batteries. But these examples show that within a very short period of time, uh, companies and industries can be turned upside down. Uh, we just had for the first time ever in the history of the world, uh, digital advertising exceed television. You know, television has been the king for decades and uh, digital, which is desktop plus mobile added together, now exceeds uh, the spend in the U.S. on TV. And in fact, mobile is the fast growing area. Mobile exceeds desktop now. So uh, there's this huge froth within industries and companies really have to be agile in one, spotting these trends while they're small, uh, if they're growing exponentially. Um, and to that, you know, the great uh, business consultant Confucius said, it is easier to step on a dragon's egg than it is to step on a dragon. You know, for all those Game of Thrones enthusiasts out there, you don't want a fully sized dragon banging around, uh, breathing fire all over your industry. So uh, that would be why I would tend to favor uh, emergent, uh, aggressive, uh, new entrants over slow moving incumbents. When it comes to the disruption. Yes. Yeah. And, and what about innovation? Well, uh, innovation can be uh, a function uh, of any company or any industry, but it's the disruptors that are innovating on so many fronts. You know, if you go stop somebody on the street and say, what is innovation? What's innovative? They'll say, oh, the iPhone is innovative. 75% of the answers you will get will be about a product. And yet products only develop or deliver 10% of the value in an innovation ecosystem. 90% of the value is by innovating around business model, around customer experience, around process, around uh, if you're in a public uh, realm, public policy. So 90% of the innovation value is delivered by things other than the product and yet the product gets 75% of the mindshare, both for people on the street and for innovation within companies. So people are innovating around product, but they're not innovating around business model. Yeah. And would you, I, I'd almost, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I, you know, I almost think that people 
uh, I know if you go through a room of people and ask them sort of define innovation for me, they, they tend to always pivot, as you just said, to the product and not necessarily to the business model. So if you go back to those prior examples that you gave Blockbuster, Netflix, you know, Uber and everybody, you know, all of those ones you gave, uh, while technology was powering a lot of that, obviously they needed that technology, that it was really about business model, right? It's own yeah. asset, don't own asset, right? Own real estate, own storefront, a la Blockbuster, don't own uh, real estate and storefront, a la Netflix, you know, or, mm -hmm. you know, I own taxis, uh, a la taxi companies, or I don't own any assets, you know, a la Uber. So it, it's definitely business model. So, you know, I often get asked uh, from clients and as well when I speak, you know, how as an incumbent can I move this sort of potentially slow thinking, consistent thinking, uh, into more innovative and fast in the business model realm. Let's leave products aside for a second. Let's just, let's hone in on business models. What, what are some ways you've seen companies that are uh, potentially slower, you know, embrace fast around business models? Well, um, uh, a couple things to say. First, I want to pick up one of your, your comments to say, I agree that it's not just about technology. Um, there was a guy who founded a, something called the dollarshaveclub.com uh, and his innovation, he'd been involved in a lot of uh, Second City improv comedy. So his big push was to create a very funny viral or very funny video that was kind of advertising length, 90 seconds, that went viral and people began sharing it on social and we became his marketing department. And he also shifted from buying razors at a drugstore or a supermarket to a subscription model. So those two innovations, uh, humor and a subscription model direct to consumer, uh, grew his business to a point where last year Unilever paid a billion dollars, a billion dollars for um, for his uh, for his company, which was selling private label razors. So yes, technology was involved in the sense that you could sign up over the web, but really it was his innovative approach to marketing and his innovative approach to changing the business model for razors. And um, in other words, just two ideas are worth a billion dollars. Um, but I think, in, but I think there's two things you just said, right? If I say, if I ask the, I ask the question, what can a large incumbent, a la potentially a Unilever, as an example, how do they become faster? And so one of the ways you've just described is they've purchased the speed, right? They've purchased an agility company. Uh, it could be the platform that they built, the social connection, the viral video, the marketing, whatever. It's much more agile, and also from a business model standpoint, it was direct to consumer which Unilever is not. Mm -hmm. So um, to your point, you can buy the company or you can take an equity stake in it or you can try and copy it. Um, but I guess in Unilever's case, they said he's been so successful and he now has all these monthly subscribers. We're going to buy the company because we get scale faster. So one of the things that companies have to be doing is continually scanning the horizon for small startups that could threaten their business. And any business that has been growing exponentially 
So doubling in size, whether that's doubling every quarter or half year or year or even every two years, if it's doubling, once it hits 1% of the market share, people will still think it's small, but it only requires seven more doublings to be 100% of the market. Exponential growth, once you hit 1%, is frightening. Seven more doublings equals 100%. So a practical example is solar power. Solar power globally is 1% of supply of electricity. But people say 99% is not. It's irrelevant. But it has been doubling every two years for 40 years consistently. Seven more doublings, 14 more years, 2030, solar can equal 100% of electricity supply globally. But people cannot see it because they don't understand exponential growth. And so how, how do you help them understand that? Because if I were to play that back to you, it, it's not a foregone conclusion that 14 years from now that will happen. Well, um, I, I wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion, but I wouldn't short it. I, I am bullish on it. Yeah. I would well, not bet against it. Yeah. And so is it, is it, is it the time that may, you know, it may be 20, let's just say it's 20 years or 20, let's say it's not 14. It's that it's going to happen because it's proven over 40. It's constantly been doubling. And so maybe the time between the doubles starts to either slow down or it could happen in the reverse and it could speed up. Yes. So what you need to look at is the declining cost curve for solar. And it's the same thing with Moore's Law and uh, Gilder's Law and so many other laws that look at technologies. If you go back to 1975, the cost of a watt of solar power was about $100. And uh, this past year, it was 20 cents. So that 20 cents is continuing to decline steeply. Um, the solar of the future will not be the solar of today. They're getting to a point where they can print solar like a newspaper on a printing press. And then you get what's called thin film solar and you just slap it on the side of a building in the northern hemisphere, the southern face of a building in the northern hemisphere. And the whole southern face of the building becomes a power generator. And uh, companies are now building solar into windows that are translucent. So just like in, if you look in your rear view mirror of your, or your rear window of your car, there'll be thin lines to defrost your uh, car in winter if you live in one of the northern states or Canada. Imagine every new window becomes a power generator. So solar won't look like it does currently. It's going to be different. But we don't, you, unless you dig into solar trends, you're not going to know this. Yeah. And, and I actually saw something the other day that Elon Musk, his roof is actually solar now, the actual roof shingles, if you will, for lack of a better word. And the roof looks great where design and social consciousness uh, and sustainability kind of all come together because having big, huge solar panels that are very obstructive and not so 
you know, visually pleasant, if you will. Uh, it may be part of some of the acquisition hesitation. You know, you have a multi-million dollar house or you or you have a house that's, uh, you know, you own, it's $100,000, whatever it is, you love your home and, and you know, it maybe it's, I don't want to put that on it. And so I think the more that it can become uh, uh, pleasing and design, uh, in, you know, intuitive, uh, more people will adopt it. You could almost say the first gen of, electric cars versus a Tesla, both electric, but look at what happened when design matched uh, where technology was taking, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles and, and, and power, electric powered vehicles. Absolutely. And if you look at um, Tesla's solar tiles, they're, uh, they're absolutely fantastic. So tell us what you know about sort of how those solar panels uh, from Tesla are, uh, on the roofs are, are going to you know, formulate themselves in the in the marketplace? Well, um, in environments where there's a great deal of sun, like California, Arizona, Texas, Florida, uh, you put these tiles on your roof, they're, uh, they look like slate tiles. They're beautifully designed. They're uh, so aesthetically pleasing. And uh, they generate power for the house, which... Uh, Tesla also so, sto sells storage batteries uh, called the Powerwall that will collect the energy from the uh, roof tiles. And then when you need to charge your Tesla at night, you just plug it into the Powerwall. Or if there's an electrical outage in your neighborhood, you can run your whole home uh, and uh, every power need you have via the Powerwall. So... Tesla is selling an integrated solution of tiles, power walls, and uh, cars, Tesla cars. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting when you think about disruption and innovation, kind of where we started this conversation, that you take a company like that, and because it started from scratch, uh, it, it did, didn't have some of the hindrances that some of the large organizations have. Uh, and, and you can see, you know, people all the time say, how do you Uberize your business or Airbnb your business or Tesla your business or, you know, all of the examples with these much more nimble companies. Uh, but for someone who has an incumbent who doesn't have the benefit and luxury of saying, you know, I'll, I'll, I, you know I'm just going to get rid of everything I have and rip and replace and go this new model. What, what things have you seen that have worked uh, if I am a leader? and I uncover something around the corner, right? Kind of what's next. And I, I don't want to use your term, right? To be blindsided by anything. Uh, first, you know, what can they do to um, start to get their companies oriented around thinking about how to respond to disruption and innovation and use it to their advantage? Sure, I'll give you uh, three examples. Um, uh, so the first one would be, uh, I interviewed a guy called James Gosling uh, when he was at Sun Microsystems. He was a Sun Fellow. Uh, Microsystem, Sun Microsystems doesn't exist anymore. But he was tasked with creating a language that would interoperate between computers. And uh, he handpicked a team of uh, super bright people, a dozen of them, and he took them off site and they created Java which we still have to this day. And I interviewed James, and when I asked him, why did you go off-site? He said, because otherwise the corporate antibodies would have got us. In other words, companies have existing systems and structures, 
and power relationships and uh, um, certain departments wield more political power than others. And if an innovation threatens those with political power, they will tend to squash it. So for instance, um, um, the guy at Kodak, his name was Steve Sassoon. He was a 23-year-old engineer, invented the first ever digital camera. But it was threatening to the existing lines of business, and they could dismiss it because it was eight pounds. It shot in black and white and recorded images to a cassette, like, you know, the old cassettes we used to play music on. Um, and so the people who would sell hundreds of millions of dollars of photochemicals wouldn't actually like it and could dismiss it because it's clunky and no consumer is going to buy an eight-pound camera. But anything that follows Moore's law over time gets lighter, faster, cheaper. Uh, and by the time digital cameras were in the forefront of consumer purchasing behavior, uh, Kodak was going bankrupt. So the company that invented it and killed it internally uh, was blindsided and actually went bankrupt because it didn't embrace the thing that it's leaders at the time this this technology was an anathema to their way of doing business so that would be the first thing so if you really want innovation to succeed you may have to spin off a, a, a separate entity that can't be squashed by the powerful players in your dominant way of doing business the second so you, thing oh, go, go ahead, ahead. So I was going to say that, you know, you see a lot of these big incumbents will create innovation labs that are separate and distinct from the existing business. It may even be in a different city, state, country, you know, management structure, metrics, et cetera. Is that a way to get around that? So I'd say yes and no. A lab is not a business. A lab is a bunch of people focused on uh, creativity. Uh, I, the definition of innovation that really matters is applied innovation that is in the market. So it's great that you have inventors sequestered away working in a lab, but where are the strategists? Where are the business developers? Where are the salespeople around those innovations? You see, this is where Silicon Valley is interesting. It's not about innovation. We have millions of ideas, but you have to bring together an ecosystem of support. You need salespeople, you need VCs, you need uh, strategists, you need marketers. It, so you can't just say the lab is going to solve our problem. You need to surround it with those other skills to make sure it gets market traction. Uh, agree. I just think you have to start somewhere, right? So I think the lab is a great oh, yeah, place yeah, yeah, to, yeah. Fig yeah, to figure out where to go, right? So let's say it comes out of the lab and then you do that surround, right? The ecosystem of everything yeah. you need, sales marketing, and, you know, had the, you know, uh, idea of the digital camera started in a lab where fast failure and agile thinking and, and that popped up as, you know what, we think this is one we can do. And then what is the business model we'd have to have and everything around to support it? Do we launch it as a separate brand so we don't disrupt our, you know, core business? Like, and you go through that sort of mindset shift I think that's a way for you to test out some of these quote unquote ideas to see them through to market and execution uh, in an incumbent, right? That may be less willing to take risk in the core business. Absolutely. 
So um, it took a long time for the digital camera to reach prime time of the 1% threshold we talked about earlier. Um, you know, when uh, Steve invented it, it was 0 0.01 megapixels. And it took 15 years until it reached a half megapixel, doubling every year in capacity, right? So exponential growth at the start is very slow. But once you get to 1%, then it's very fast. And if companies start playing in the space, once it hits 1%, it's too late. So you need to get in there when it's, you know, uh, a quarter percent, a half percent of its potential um, in order to ramp up and get up to speed. So really, one of the great insights is about, yeah, I, I believe that if Kodak had spun off uh, a little department working on um, digital photography, it might have been five people, tiny little budget for Kodak. It could have existed uh, for 15 years perfecting the technology and then boom, it moves into prime time. And now you bring in the marketing muscle of Kodak the parent and uh, wow, that is a brilliant combination of applied innovation with market muscle. Yeah, and I think how do companies... What are things you've seen of how businesses can identify those early warning signals, right? Or those little breadcrumbs of, of innovation and disruption that's happening around them to identify maybe what are those one, two, three things that they can test and get an idea around and get people thinking about what could they do differently there? What are some things business leaders can do to identify those things they may want to look further into? Well, um, there was a study done, Tiffany, of CEOs, and predictably, 88% of CEOs said innovation was essential to their top line and to their profitability. But only 22% had a formal system of innovation. And to me, that's like saying 88% of CEOs know that sales are essential to their top line and their profitability. But only 22% of companies in North America have uh, any salespeople. Only 22% of North American companies have sales systems like a CRM, like Salesforce. Only 22% do sales training. Only 22% tie compensation to, you know, uh, to uh, performance on a quarterly or annual basis. The other 80% of companies just kind of magically hope that sales are going to happen. You know, that would be a ludicrous statement. And yet that's what North American firms are doing with innovation. They're saying it's going to be an ad hoc kind of like whoever has an idea, we're going to have a suggestion box. Like, like, give me a break. Imagine sales worked in that way. We're going to have a suggestion box of who we should approach, <laughs> right? And nobody's going to approach them. Nobody's going to be assigned to approach them. We just kind of hope somebody will take it up, right? Like we need formal systems of innovation. We need every single, I, you mentioned at the start, I used to represent Stephen Covey who taught the seven habits. And one of our core philosophies at Covey was every single person in your organization needs to be trained in the seven habits so that we have a common language and a common framework to understand both threats and opportunities 
and work collaboratively across silos and break down those silos. But if not everybody in an organization even understands what innovation is, why it's essential, what processes we drive it through in our organization, um, how, how do we actually change? Because the example we have of Steve in Kodak, Steve invented this thing. He could see the future. He could see where it was going. But the C, so here you had a 23-year-old engineer excited about this and a 65-year-old CEO who's come out through photochemicals, right? Who does all the strategic planning? The 65-year-old CEO. Who's most disenfranchised from strategic planning? The 23-year-old engineer. Is it any wonder we only get incremental change in organizations? So how do we literally unleash the talent of our people in an organization? You know, how do we create formal systems and structures? How do we train everyone? You know, um, these are the big organizational challenges for the incumbents who are slow to respond. Yeah, and I think this is one of the hardest things, you know, whenever I, I meet with executives, I think everybody is open to, I want to be better at seeing the early warning signs, or I've actually seen them, I believe they're coming our way, and I don't know what to do, or I've seen them coming, I think I know what to do, I'm going to try this, or I've tried something and it's failed. You know, it's kind of this varying degree of, uh, on this spectrum of, I know it's coming or I don't think it's coming. You know what I mean? It's kind of this wide spectrum and, mm -hmm. and what they can do. And a lot of it has to do, in my opinion, in kind of the people process side of it. I think we all intuitively would say our lives professionally with technology are significantly different than it was even five years ago. Our personal lives is very different than it was 10 years ago. How we run our homes, how we pay our bills, how we communicate with family and friends. I mean, significantly different. I, I read a stat that there's now like 3 billion people using social media now. I mean, wow, you know, it, it's just overwhelming. And so how they approach these things, I think has a huge impact on how successful they will be. So if there's one or two things you would leave our listeners today on uh, on what they could do to not be blindsided um, and be better at sort of learning and being open to what is in front of them. What, what would you say? Well, uh, I'm a kind of systemic guy. I look at uh, what systems and structures can we put in place that are going to help us uh, understand the future as it's, you know, <laughs> coming at us. And one is you have a board of directors of large organizations. Uh, create a shadow board. So this is a board of 20 and 30 somethings. And every decision that's made by the board board gets run by the shadow board. And they say, you know, the shadow board might say that is the most brain dead idea we've ever heard. Why are you going to spend millions of dollars on a new asset when the sharing economy allows uh, us to access those assets and pay pennies to the pound uh, for them. Why would we spend that money? Why not just pay as you go for it? And you can't understand the new reality unless you're living it. You know, I don't use Snapchat, so I really don't get what Snapchat's all about. So I would not be a good person to hire if you're a marketer targeting 
you know, 14 to 18-year-olds because I've got zero experience with the medium. If you want to target 18 to uh, 14 to 18-year-olds, you need people on your marketing team who are heavy users of Snapchat. Like, but how many people who have gray hair use Snapchat and use it effectively? Not many. So it's really about understanding how different demographics have different skill sets, different understanding of the world, and having a systemic way of involving different voices in your strategy sessions and decision making. Yeah, I think that's just fantastic advice. You know, I, I, I've had a, another guest on the, sh on the show, Lisa Bodell, talking about sort of diversity of teams uh, and, and really in, in order to drive innovation. And diversity does not just necessarily mean men and women. I think people get stuck that that's all it talks about. Diversity can be age, can be, you know, where people are from, language, all kinds of things, just inclusive and diverse across the board. Uh, and I think you just highlighted the fact that you made the assumption the board was probably, uh, you know, not in their 20s. And then you get, you know, people who are more millennial to give a balance to making sure that you're covering the potential entire spectrum of customers you now want to go after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. I think this has just been a really great conversation. I thank you so much, Jim, for uh, being on the show and helping us understand what's next and your perspective was awesome. And, you know, I just couldn't, can't thank you enough for spending uh, your time with us today and sharing all your great insights with our listeners. Well, Tiffany, it's been uh, really great to be on the show. And for any listeners who want to follow me on Twitter, I'm just at Jim Harris. And I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, Jim Harris. And uh, I would be delighted to interact with any of your listeners uh, and really exciting to, uh, you know, engage with people on uh, the site where the podcast goes up. Yeah, well, great. Well, of course, you are prolific and one of the you know strongest influencers out there on Twitter, uh, you know, top list for IoT and digital disruption and all kinds of things. So if you're looking for someone to follow, Jim is the guy. But again, thank you so much for being on the show and we will catch up again soon. Look forward to it, Tiffany. That was a great conversation with Jim Harris. It's so awesome to get an influencer who is watching all kinds of aspects of the market, give his opinion on things like how not to be blindsided if you're running a company and you're in a highly disruptive space and the things that you need to do to prepare yourself, I think, are just critical. We get caught sometimes in, in looking just at the weeds and we're unable to see kind of the forest through the trees. We need to take a pause and make sure that we're focusing on the right things. I think his comment around exponential growth is what's important and applying innovation is what matters. Applied innovation is what matters. Not just thinking about it and talking about it. It's how do you take an idea and take it all the way through to executing it and getting it in the hands of your customers. Just fascinating information. And last but not least, I think my one of my most uh, greatest nuggets out of this whole thing was this ecosystem to bring an idea to execution. It's never just one person. It's always about the power of the entire company, your shareholders, your customers, and more importantly, your employees. So with that, it was a fantastic other one more episode of What's Next with Jim Harris. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, download, share with your friends, share on social, and we will see you again next time. Have a great day.